At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. This is a special Best of Caller Questions Invest Talk compilation program. Remember, the Invest Talk phone lines never close. Please call with questions. 888-99 chart. 888-99 CHART. They will be played and answered on an upcoming Invest Talk podcast. Welcome to Invest Talk. Above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have, as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHARTER is our number, 888-992-4278. Hey, Steve, Justin, and Luke. This is Keith from Redondo Beach. Question on asset allocation and market valuation. So I know you don't ever want to totally get out of the market, and I believe a primary determinant of your returns is your asset allocation, how much is in stocks versus fixed value. Question for you, is there a rule of thumb that says, hey, if I've got a 60-40 portfolio in general, and I think the market is 10% overvalued, do I change 60-40 to 50-50? And if I think the market is 10% undervalued, do I change 60-40 to maybe 70-30? Is there a rule of thumb that gives you a ratio between how far you think the market is overvalued or undervalued versus what percent you are in stocks versus fixed income. Anyway, thanks a lot, and I'll listen to your response. Bye-bye. Well, that ratio that you were talking about, and the adjustment of that ratio, is a method to try to capture uh, stocks when they're low, low price and try to, uh, capture, uh, try to sell stocks when they're high price. That's what that effort is uh, as far as an asset allocation model goes. And as I, as I said many times, nothing's perfect. Everything's imperfect in our industry. Um, how do you uh, realize? First thing I, I would suggest is you've got to study the relationship between the economic cycle and the stock market cycle because they're tied together. They're not tied. They don't, one doesn't go up and the other one goes up following it. That's not what I mean. But they are tied together. In, in a recession, market has different Stock market has different sectors that work better. And in boom times for the economy, the stock market has sectors where that works better. So, and it's very clear. It's no, there's no mystery to it. You can type in um, economic cycles in the stock market in search, and you'll get all kinds of charts. You can study it yourself. It's pretty simple. But, you know, it's difficult. you got to know what sectors are tra- trade traditionally higher than standard P.E. ratios and which ones are lower, and then understand the cycles. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's not that simple just to say, well, if it has a P.E. of here this low, that must mean a good stock. Not necessarily. I don't know. I have to see the, the previous earnings and the estimated earnings going forward, what kind of industry is it in, that kind of stuff. There's no easy answer. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you. Managing multiple mutual funds, researching professional services, where to put your savings. If it's about money and if it's important to you, we want to know more about it. We're here for you. 888-99-CHART is how to reach Steve or Justin right now on Invest Talk. I was looking to see how to get bond exposure. Don't have a lot of cash, but would like to get bond exposure. Thank you very much. Well, for most people, uh, bond exposure is done. The easiest method is through exchange-traded funds, ETFs, where you can buy any uh, a type of bonds. You can buy corporate bonds, treasuries. You can buy short-term, intermediate-term, long-term, and you can mix and match. And it's like buy, it's as easy as buying a stock, but you're actually buying an ETF for bonds, which has a bunch of bonds inside it. And how much risk you take depends on how, you know, don't fall in love with return, the yield. If the yield is very, very high, that usually translates into more and more risk. And more and more risk, you know, in a bond portfolio means that high-risk bonds are junk bonds and they're corporate junk bonds, okay? And you don't necessarily want to be in uh, all those types of bonds. That doesn't mean you can't have exposure to that. I'm just saying that that's where the risk is. And, you know, you can, what's nice about ETFs and buying bond ETFs is you can moderate the risk as much as you want. You can take very low risk, but you got to remember the lower risk you take, the lower the yield. But today's market, short-term treasuries pay, you know, three, four, five percent. Four, five percent, really, not three. Or five percent, which is pretty decent compared to recent history, last ten years or whatever. Um, so you can get a pretty good return with taking very little risk, and I think exchange traded funds the best way to do that. You can also buy individual bonds, but then you have to buy a bunch of them, and you have to understand how to how to how the ratings work and how good are they are, and take a look at the fundamentals of the company that back the bonds. You know, it's, it gets pretty complex. So, you know, and you probably get a little better return, but you got to work for that and you got to understand what you're doing. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now. Now, if you've been listening to Invest Talk for a while, you may have heard several callers ask about Steve Peasley. Where is he? When will he return to the podcast microphone? Well, Steve has prepared a short message for you, so let me read that now. I know many of you have been wondering why my presence on InvestTalk throughout 2023 was so spotty. Well, the reason for my absence has been my current battle with cancer, pancreatic cancer. My fight has had its ups and downs, and I'm currently on my third round of chemotherapy. My wife, Suzanne, has been taking wonderful care of me, and I fight every day for her, my family, and you, our loyal listeners. There's nothing I would love more than to connect with you again and help you on your financial journey. But for right now, I must focus on this battle. I will be off air until the time comes that I'm able to put this behind me. I know you are in good hands with Justin and now Luke, as they are as sharp as they come and very experienced in the world of finance and economics. I thank you all for your concern, and I hope to speak with you all again later in the year. Now, those are Steve's words. 
And we sincerely thank all our listeners, clients, friends, and Steve's treatment is continuing. We support him in every way we can. And I will uh, certainly pass along any updates when Steve sends this to me. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99 C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hello. First off, I want to say thank you guys for putting out a wonderful show. I get a lot of knowledge from your show. But my question is I'm 46 years old. I've got a fair amount of stocks, but I've also got a decent amount of credit card debt. And I'm trying to chop away at my credit card debt. Do you think it would be wise to pull out my stocks, pay off my credit card debt, chop up my credit cards, and never use them again, and then start building my portfolio? I know the interest is costing me more than the interest I'm making on most of my stocks. So if you could answer that question, I would be grateful. I hope you have a great day. And again, thank you for the show. Well, the simple answer answer is yes, because the credit card debt is so expensive. I mean, the stock market, on average, returns less than 10% a year. And the credit card debt is, what, 15 to 25%? So, yeah, pay your credit card debt down. Why pay more than you can make with the money? You can make – look at it this way. You can make more money by paying off that debt and not going any more debt than in the stock market. It's always, what's the best use of my money? And in this case, paying off credit card debt. And yes, cut all of them up except for at least one and because uh, you need emergencies as such. But don't use them. Or I've been using credit cards forever, but I always pay it off every month. Pay it off every month. I don't pay any interest on that money. If you can't do that, then cut them all up. Okay? Appreciate the call. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Kent in Texas again. I was calling for us old guys in their 70s that are getting long in the tooth. What I want to know is what y'all recommend us as far as our spouses, like mine of over 50 years, and as far as involving individual stocks and ETFs or mutual funds. Do y'all kind of tell us to get further into the ETFs and mutual funds and out of individual stocks when they're, we're this far down the road and way closer to the end than we are the beginning. All right, my friends, that's the question. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, I do suggest that, you know, as you get older, you want to take less and less risks because you're starting to, you know, you're switching from growth to income producing. Usually that's the path of most people in our 70 years and older. And my mine just turned 70, so I know what that's like. Um, so, yeah, uh, more conservative would be best, but it depends on your personality, too, and how much money you actually have. You know, and if you're worried about you passing away before your wife and can she maintain what you're doing, does she understand what's going on? You know, those are a lot of things, you know, that play, come into play. But I don't necessarily think you should get out of stocks, but you still you do have to have decent diversification. But, you know, at 70, I'd probably look at the bigger blue chip dividend paying stocks. At least that's what I'm looking at for myself. I'm weighting my portfolio to that. That doesn't mean I abandon growth. I don't. But, you know, I'm I'm weighting my my own personal assets to more conservative type position in the market. And we have a couple of those programs that are like that. One's an old bond 
program, which is pretty darn conservative. One's bond and dividend paying stock program. That's pretty conservative. You know, so that's the kind of thing you probably should do. But again, it depends on you and your wife and how aggressive you want to be. And do you want to, you know, how much work do you want involved here? You know, just want to set it and forget it? Well, that's possible. You can do that. Okay, let's pivot to an Investor Voice Bank for a question that came in earlier. 888-99-CHART. Hey, how you doing, Steve and Justin? This is Will from New Orleans. I'm giving you a call on, it's not really a stock question. It's more like an economic question. I see China is going through it with these, um, I think it's Evergrande. Evergrande is uh, having like, a, I think they're missing a payment or something. I'm not too, you know, familiar of the exact wording, but I did read that they have ghost cities in China. And it just seemed like China is just doing a lot of falsified things. Like they're just hiding the real truth and just putting out information. So my question is, I see Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund, sold $1 billion worth of Chinese stocks. So I'm thinking, what do you think about the Chinese economy and what domino effect will that bring to our economy if, if Evergrande, you know, collapsed? Um, just give me your uh, thoughts on that. Thank you. Actually, it's a very good question. Evergrande is a builder, one of the biggest, largest in build, builder in there. And they, they were building apartments, uh, apartment building sales, selling to the public. And they were selling them before they even built them. And how they got the money, okay, they got the money through bonds, bond sales and, you know, municipal bond sales and stuff. And so it's kind of a domino effect they're not they can't produce any more money they they ran out of money and they didn't finish the buildings some of them they didn't even start and the people have already bought the buildings have mortgages that they're not paying it's kind of collapsing i think their economy is really in trouble uh i saw a report that they're going economy is going to grow four percent this year uh, and but you know what you're right we don't really know they can hide a lot they can't hide everything, but they can hide a lot. One thing it should tell us is that the demand on commodity prices is pro- commodities are probably going to go down because you you can't imagine how much pressure China puts on commodity prices and commodity supplies. So that's probably going to ease off a bit. They're still growing, but it's going to ease off, and I think that will help us get our get control of of, of the inflation here in the United States and, and in other places of the world. But one of the issues of inflation here in the U.S. that I don't see uh, us controlling is wage inflation. I don't, I don't see that, you know, with the jobs we have and the jobs available and, and workers, you know, not going back to work because they don't feel like it and quitting their jobs, a high quit rate and you know, demanding better benefits. And it, it just seems like... Wage inflation is going to continue. But that's a very good question. I think, I think China's economy is in a lot worse shape than that we know. And we probably will never know. They've been hiding it for years. You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you. 888-99-CHART. Beginning our experience, we're here to answer your questions.
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888 99CHART is our number, everybody. You can reach us. We have lines open, 888 992 4278. Hey, Steve and Justin. Thank you for the show. I'm a relatively new investor. I uh, opened up an account looking to kind of invest for a longer-term goal, like an investment property or something like that. Based on your show, I know that a large portion of my portfolio should include bonds. And I know everyone likes to call and talk about companies and options and things like that. But I was wondering if you could give me uh, a rundown on what bonds you guys like to buy, what I should look for when buying bonds. I know there are a couple different types of bonds, investment grade, corporate bonds, treasuries, things like that. I was also wondering what a junk bond is, if that's uh, just a name for a bond or if that means that it's junk and shouldn't be invested. Appreciate the show and a Appreciate you guys answering my call. Listen for it on the podcast. Thank you. Okay, that's that's a lot of lot of answering to do there. First of all, if you're young, we don't recommend bonds. You don't need to be in bonds. It's only when you approach in retirement that you want to take less risk that you start moving toward bonds. And we like you buying the individual bonds, not the bond funds or the bond ETFs. Now. Um, Bonds are a whole different animal from stocks, so it's very different. I'll answer the last question there about junk bonds. Okay, investment-grade corporate bonds are triple B plus or higher. That's the rating. There's two rating agencies. I won't get into that. But you want a higher rating bond, investment-grade. Now, triple B plus or better. Now, junk bonds are rated below that. That doesn't mean you can't invest in them. They're perfectly fine to invest in. Just realize they are higher risk. Now, it goes from triple B plus to triple B to double B plus to double B to double double B minus and blah, blah, on, 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 all the way down, okay? So the higher rated junk bonds, most of them are fine. These junk bonds just pay higher a higher yield and the problem we've had in recent times is their yields are not enough to make up for the risk. So stay away from the junk bonds. But it doesn't mean you never invest in them. It doesn't mean that at all. Junk doesn't mean it will go under. But junk bonds have a higher percentage of going bankrupt and not pay the bonds back than investment grade. But still, you still can invest in them. You just got to be careful. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages? Give us a call today, 888 888- 99 chart. I have a question for you about index variable annuities. You kind of talked about this on a previous podcast, but essentially I'm wondering your thoughts on these index variable annuities that have buffer protection. I was, you know, one was kind of came up in a discussion with me and another financial advisor, and they seem like a great deal. Let's say you take an IRA and you put it into index variable annuity. The downsides to this are the illiquidity because there's surrender charges for six years. But if you don't need this money, say, you know, you're my age, late 20s, early 30s, you know, you don't need this money till retirement anyways. The illiquidity isn't really an issue because you don't plan on touching it anyways, assuming it's not a Roth IRA. And they just, they seem like a great deal. And I wanted to get your thoughts on it again. You have these buffers, 
downsides or illiquidity. You can you, know, you put it in an S&P 500 index fund. Let's say when you're you're tracking the S&P and maybe the S&P is you know still not weighted exactly how you would put together an ideal portfolio. But given the fact that you have this buffer and the fact that also you know the the majority of money managers don't outperform the S&P index to begin with. It seems like a pretty good deal, but I just wanted to get your thoughts. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, indexes is a good deal. I like indexing. You don't need to hire people like me if you don't want to. Um, but annuities are expensive. Um, you were talking about the buffer. Maybe I need to explain that quickly to everybody, what a buffer, what he's talking about. Uh, some of these annuities now, and they're indexing annuities. It's, it's an index annuity, so all it does is buy the index, okay? They buy a mutual fund, an index mutual fund. So you've got to pay a fee to the annuity and pay a fee to the mutual fund. Uh, and, of course, you can't get out, or you can, but it'll cost you a lot of money because they're selling this. Someone's getting commissions, usually 5% of whatever you put in goes to the salesperson. So you got to usually hold on to them for 10 years. But if you're a long-term holder, like he suggested, that doesn't really worry about anything like that. So, and there's two kinds of annuities. There's a fixed annuity and a variable annuity. We're talking about a variable annuity investing in an index. The, the guarantee that they're talking about, the buffer he's talking about, means that you're, you would never, they guarantee you that you will never lose money. The value of annuity will never go below your initial investment. And how can they say that? I mean, what happens if the market crashes? They'll still guarantee it. Now, it's not much risk to them, and there's not much you know danger for you, because there's been no period of 10 years, well, maybe one in the last 100 years, where the stock market ended up being down. So looking forward 10, 20, 30 years, they pretty much know that, and everybody knows that the market's going to go up. It has an upward bias of 8 to 10% a year. So then that, that, that guarantee, I wouldn't pay much attention to it. I don't think it has much worth. And if you want to index, why don't you just buy an index, not through an annuity? They don't have to pay a commission to somebody. Remember, you're paying that commission. Well, that means that you put in 100000 You're not really putting in 100000 You're putting in ninety five. But if you bought an index yourself, you're putting up the whole hundred thousand. So I would do that rather than buy an annuity. Just my suggestion. I'm Money Manager Steve Peasley, and we're here to help you get better results if we can with your invested dollars. That's our goal. Do you have a question? Check in now. 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data 
or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Um, I had a question about closed ended funds. Uh-huh. I discovered them about almost a year ago, and I went from investing a little bit to quite a bit, over 200000 now I'm in them, including munis. Um, Okay. They're doing really, really well. They're not talked about very much in investment circles, no. and it's hard to get information. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on them. I, I realize there's risk involved, but uh, so far, so good for me. I okay. just wanted to know your thoughts. Sure. A closed-end fund is neither good nor bad. It's a different type of investment. Okay. Everybody knows what a mutual fund is. Everybody knows what ETFs are. But closed-end funds have been around a lot longer than ETFs, exchange-traded funds. What's the difference is between a mutual fund, an ETF, and a closed-end fund? The closed-end fund has a finite number of shares. It's just, it can do anything that a mutual fund or ETF can do. Follow a follow a uh, an index. It can buy and sell stocks. It can be a bond closed-end fund. But being that it has a finite number of shares, like a company, like a stock company, it can sell at higher than the net asset value of the fund's holdings. So, you know, an open-end fund, which is a mutual fund or an ETF, means it always sells at what is the value of the holdings it has. A closed-end fund can sell at a discount to the value or a premium to the value. So you can buy a closed-end fund and you can pay more than what it's really worth. The holdings are worth less than what you have. Or you can buy at a discount and the holdings can be more. So don't think that it's really that different of an investment than all the others, other than it can sell at a discount or a premium. Of course, you would like to buy it at a discount because you're getting the stuff that it's holding cheaper than the market value is. But... Yeah, there's nothing wrong with having them. There's no, you know, there's no magic there. It's just that if you buy a good closed-end fund, you you get a good managed fund. There you go. You 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 get the assets that's in the fund. Okay. So don't, you know, they're fine, Mark. There's nothing wrong with them at all. Nothing wrong with them. I'm just calling about some of the fundamental analysis that you guys do. What type of metrics you look for, without giving away the secret sauce. Basically, I'm curious on what numbers you look for in the ratio of EV to EBITDA, and then price sales, and then price to book. So if you guys could provide a, uh, a kind of range that you use to determine the value in that way, it would be helpful for my own fundamental analysis. Thank you. Love the show. I've been listening to it for years, and uh, I wait. A response. Thanks a bunch. 
Okay, I wish it was as simple as just to give you the uh, numbers and say this is what you look for. But you have to break it down by sectors and types of industries because, you know, the, you can't compare a, a tech growth stock with an industrial stock. It, 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 the numbers are very different. The P.E. ratios, the earnings, the EBITDA, everything is very different. So it's not that simple, okay? Um, you, you do know that the overall S&P 500 P.E. ratio is between 15 and 16. So in general, that's, you know, you don't, if, you wanna, if you're a value investor, you want to pay less than that. But if you're a growth investor, you're going to pay more. Then it winds down to the individual stock positions from, from economic projections to sector analysis to the individual stocks and how they perform against each other. It's, it's just not as simple. I, I can't just say, okay, I, I'm looking for, you know, I can say stuff like we look for rising margin, profit margins, rising, not falling. Stay away from falling. We look for we like to have value plus growth in the stocks we we buy, generally speaking. Uh, and it depends on what kind of investor you are. We, you know, if you're an income investor, we love high dividends. You know, and therefore that those metrics are very different of that company than one who doesn't pay a dividend. Our Invest Talk mission is to help you make better investing decisions. To do that on your own, thumbs up or thumbs down choices based on good, solid investing principles. But we need your questions to keep us on track. 888-99-CHART or click on Contact Steve or Contact Justin on investtalk.com. Hello, Justin and Klein. Thank you, and I love your show. I listen every day. This is Ella from the Middle East. My question is, can you name for me the best low-risk ETF to put my money on, not rather than uh, keep the, the money in, in the bank, on my account bank? I consider your opinion. Thank you so much again, and have a great day. Okay. Uh, Low-risk means uh, very little stock market exposure. So your low-risk ETS is what you're asking about would be like an ultra-short bond fund. That would be low risk. A little bit more risk would be just a short-duration bond fund. Okay, well, that would have no stock market exposure. When you start getting any stock market exposure, you can't call it low risk anymore. It just means more risk. When we sit down and meet with people, we talk about it. Justin and I talk about risk and how much risk and how to judge what risk you're taking. And as you get older, you want low risk. You want lower risk. But I also suggest that you always have some exposure to the stock market because that's the only way you're going to outperform inflation. Inflation is going to eat into your money. So what if the CD rates uh, are going, uh, maybe they'll be 4 and 5%. But if inflation's 8%, that's not going to help you. It's not. It means you're not even keeping up with inflation. So your money will buy less than two, three, four years from now than it can buy now. And even though it's growing, it's still buying less. The dollars are not buying what they should be buying. Got to stay up with inflation. Got to stay up with inflation. Okay, we're going to go to Paul in San Francisco. How you doing, Paul? I'm good. Thanks for the call. Uh, I have a question about required minimum distributions. Um, you're required to take them out after age whatever, 70 or something like that. And 72. And then you have 27 years or something like that to get them all out. And and so is there a maximum age that anybody can have any money in there? And that would be, I think, below 
below 100 and somewhere above 95. Is that true? You have to take your minimum distributions. They don't tar- start until you're 72. We're everybody, we're talking about retirement accounts that, you know, regular IRAs or regular 401ks that you have to start taking the money out because the federal government wants your taxes on that money. That's the purpose. But they changed it from 70 to 72 a year or two ago, so you don't have to start taking minimum distributions until you're 72. And they just recently, I just read, just recently uh, uh, extended the life expectancy a couple of years. So that means you'll be reducing, they'll re- be reducing the, the amount that they require you to take a little bit because you'll live longer. So... Uh, you don't have to work it down to any specific number, Robert. They just make you take out a certain percentage every year based on the tables. So, you know, you, you could pass away or I could pass away having million dollars in our IRA. That would not, that could happen. So there's no, no, you don't have to take so much out, only, only based on their requirements of minimum distributions. And whatever's left is left. Okay? Thanks for the call. Well, Appreciate it. Yeah, if I'm over 100. No, the age has nothing to do with it. Whatever's left over is whatever's left over. By the time you're 100, they may have already required you to take most of the money out. Did they, you know, because of they, every year they, they make you take out a certain percentage. So if you're 100 and you have some left, that's surprising. That's great. Uh, great news. But no, you don't have to take anything out. James in Sonoma. How you doing, James? I'm doing pretty good. I wasn't going to call today, but you mentioned RMD, so I yep. ran to the phone. Okay, I'm going to be 72 next year, and unless Congress raises the uh, raises it up to 73, which I'm crossing my fingers, I'm hoping, I'm not think... going to need the money. So mine's a three-part question here. If I'm 72 and I can take the RMD, I assume I can take it anywhere in that year. Because uh, my birthday's way late in the year. It's in August. I'm assuming I could take it February 2nd if I wanted to. My next question would be, is there any advantage to taking and putting, uh, you know, 500 shares of Honeywell from Part A? Because I don't need the money. And right. putting Part B, in other words, transferring stock versus cash. <laughs> and then my last question is, uh, what do you recommend? What do most of your clients do? They take it early, take it late, do stocks. What do they do? Most of my clients take their RMD at the end of the year. You have to take it at the end of the year. It's not based on your birthday. It's based on the year that you turn 70 half. And by in that year, by the end of the year, you have to take the distribution. The other question you had, transfer stocks. You can take it any way you want out of your retirement account and put it into a regular account. You can do it via stocks if you want to transfer that amount of money that it represents to another account, and that's perfectly doable and and allowable. And one other thing, did you know that the IRS is changing the tables for the RMD? In other words, what they're doing is to our benefit, instead of using 82.4 years of a life expectancy, they're going to start using 84.6. So that means the amount of RMD the first the, the, in the years is reduced because it's over a longer period of time. So that's a benefit to us. How much is not that great of a deal, but it's something. It's better than nothing. And I don't. I doubt seriously, James, that the IRS is going to extend another year. I don't see that higher happening. I really don't. And thank you for the call. I appreciate Darn. it. 
if you're holding a stock at a significant loss, say down like 70% or one of these high tech stocks, if you're holding in a brokerage account, you know, you can always sell off those stocks to have offset your capital gains. But in a Roth IRA, you can't offset any losses. What is your guys' recommendation on a strategy? Do you just hold on to it and just wait? Maybe in five plus years, you know, you'll recoup your money. Or do you just sell it and just kind of like, you know, throw that money away? What is your strategy on a Roth IRA with stocks with significant losses? I look forward to hearing your answers on the podcast. You guys do a fantastic job. I've learned a lot. I appreciate everything you do. Have a great night. Okay, that's a pretty good question. So if you have a stock that's lost lots of value, do you get rid of it? Do you just say, okay, that's too much, I'm out? And the answer is not that simple. First of all, you ask yourself, well, why did I buy the company? What was about the company that I bought it? Did I buy it for the dividend? Did I buy it for growth? Did I buy it because it has a new product coming out? And so you should write those reasons down when you buy the company. This is why I own this company. Okay, here's my reasons. Now, if those fundamental reasons why you bought that company no longer are valid, then get rid of the stock. So let's talk about, you know, a high dividend paying, big, huge, blue chip stock paying, you know, when you bought it, paid 4.5% dividend. Now it lost over half its value. So the dividend's gone up dramatically as a percentage. They pay out the same amount of dollars and cents, but dramatically far as percentage. Do you get rid of that stock? Well, if you just bought it for the dividend and you were just going to hold on to it because it pays a great dividend, no, you just hold on to it. If you bought a stock that's growth, you wanted to buy the stock because it was growing really fast, and it's still growing, but the market's beating it up terribly, you would still hold on to it if the valid, if that reason still is there. It's still growing like it was. But let's say it stopped growing. Maybe competition is too hard. Then there would be a valid reason to get rid of it. So those are the kind, you just have to, it's just not because the price goes up or down that you sell a stock. That's not a valid reason to, to buy or sell a stock because the price went up or down. That's not valid. We're going to go to Jimmy and Sam Ramon. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, Steve. Uh, I'm a new listener. Uh, Great. I'm new to uh, this whole investing thing. I actually have a investment set up with my union, but uh, I've been looking mm-hmm. to spend maybe $1,000 to get into my own stocks, building my own stuff, and I was wondering what you thought would be a good one to get into with that smaller amount of money. Well, just to let you know, we can answer questions, but I can't give you recommendations. How old are you? 24. This is a great time to start thinking about it because the market over time will give you, oh, 10%. That's what it's done over time for the last 7,500 years. Mm -hmm. 10% return. The question is, a lot of people don't get that return because they have no clue what they're doing. One of the problems that most people do have is they let their emotions get involved with their decision making. Mm Mm-hmm. When they see their prices are going down and the stock market's crashing, they get out. you got to look longer term. When they see the market going up and just up, 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 they put more money into it. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, if you really want to be successful, when you are at your saddest and you feel like you just wasted money putting in the market, that's mm-hmm. when you put more in. Uh-huh. And when you're at your happiest, that you're making a ton of money over the years, and look at this, this stock, this, my stocks went up the last six months to 100%. Sell, take it out, take <laughs> some profits. You play your own emotions that way, you'll be a lot better off. 
So the one thing you need to do is figure out how to evaluate stocks, how to determine whether this is a stock that's overpriced or is this stock on sale. Uh-huh. Stick with the price of stocks that are on sale, but at the same time, those same on-sale stocks, you want to be in an uptrend on a chart. In other words, the stock has been moving up consistently for a while. That's how you pick stocks. Uh-huh. If you give me a call, I will be happy to give you some value methods that are not very difficult. Uh-huh. And then on the websites, there's a ton of places. One of the easiest ways to evaluate a stock, and I'm going to give it to you right now, is take next year's growth rate of a stock. Multiply that times its earnings estimates by the experts for next year. Remember, the stocks look forward, not backward. So if the earning for next year is going to be a dollar per share, it's always a per share issue. If the earnings is going to be a dollar per share next year and it's growing at 20% a year, multiply 20 times a dollar and the stock price fair value is about $20. Sounds good. Okay. Great. Good luck, and you'll love it. I started uh, 21. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. I was wondering how you set your target price to sell. Let's say you buy something at the bottom of a five year PE range. Do you extrapolate that out to the top of its five year PE range to sell, or do you pick something in the middle? Looking forward to hearing the answer on the show. Thanks. If we use that as a trigger, that just as a simple PE, we would we would use a trigger of maybe we'd probably use the Fibonacci numbers, maybe sixty percent rise from the top to the bottom of a range that that the stock sells in. Um, but yeah, it wouldn't be a fifty percent rise. It'd be, we'd have to see a bit more than that uh, of the range, you know, the PE range. But we don't generally use the PE as a reason to get out. That's because the PE could it changes all the time. The E changes, okay. Uh, the price changes. Everything changes. And what if we see an opportunity here that you know they they have some you know for instance let's talk about the most recent uh, what was that the the act that the Congress just passed. They say it's an Inflation Reduction Act, which is not. You can't spend $800 billion and say that it's going to reduce inflation, no matter how you say it. But let's talk about that. They're spending a huge amount of money in the energy, the clean energy sector. If the PEs go up, I may let it run if I'm in one of those types of stocks that's going to benefit from all the money the government's spending on that over the next 10 years. That's why we don't just use the PE as a range, as a trigger. The PE range is a trigger. I wouldn't suggest that. I would not. This is Invest Talk. You can get your free Invest Talk podcast downloads anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or investtalk.com. I am a big fan of your podcast, and I just got started with it. Be sure to tell your friends and family members about Invest Talk and encourage them to listen, rate, and review. The Anytime Listener Lines never close. Steve and Justin are waiting for your questions. 
888-99-CHART. Hello, Noah from Hawaii. Thank you, first of all, for the uh, excellent, excellent podcast you put out. My goodness gracious, uh, you enrich us with your entertainment and your uh, and the education that you give us on uh, all the financial matters. Uh, thinking about uh, utilizing a certified financial planner, a fiduciary, to manage my um, my retirement funds, and I want to know the correct, proper questions to ask them to research that company or a particular company. Should I ask them about their annualized return for low, medium, and high-risk portfolios? Should I ask them about their ratings within the industry? And third, should I um, ask them about their fee structure based upon a dollar amount invested with their firm? I uh, appreciate your answer, and I listen. look forward to it. Take care, and aloha from Hawaii. Okay, CFP, Certified Financial Planners, uh, are, are a good start. But the first major question when you're talking to a financial planner is how they get paid because they're not investors they're not they don't invest things um, they more advise you what to buy and and generally they're telling you to buy insurance and buying mutual funds and buying annuities things that cost money to you but makes them high profit so that's the first most important thing in my mind is uh, uh, how he gets paid when, when uh, you know, if he, if you pay him by the hour because he's giving you advice, I, I'm okay. I'm okay with that, and I'm okay with him getting paid. Don't think I'm not. But a lot of times it's obscure because he's getting commissions and back end commissions from things, or he or she. Also, if they're recommending a custodian of your money, you know, like Schwab or Fidelity, Vanguard, I don't care who. Goldman Sachs, make sure it is F, uh, insured, okay? FDIC, uh, that is the insurance for banks. SIPC is insurance for um, uh, custodian of investment accounts. You want a large, safe, insured custodian. That's really important. Very, very important. Madoff who stole those billions of dollars, He was his, his company was the custodian and it was not insured. Okay? And of course, you mentioned it, you want it, you want them to be a fiduciary. You want them to have the fiduciary responsibility. Uh, we are, KPB Financial is, and that is important that you get it. So those are the kinds of questions. You know, performance, if he's a, a financial planner, He's not managing accounts, so you know his performance would be whoever he's telling you to go to for performance, whatever assets he's telling you to buy. So, good questions, though. Very good questions. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461.
Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.